добро пожаловать в эпизод 415 Монстер Китродио, подкаста, посвященного классическому, а иногда и не столь классическому жанровому кино прошлого года. Я ваш писатель, продюсер и ведущий, Дерек М. Кох, и у нас есть не один, не два, а три фильма, о которых можно поговорить на этой неделе. Okay, well that's enough of that. I am not going to do the entire show with the use of a Google translated version of what I normally say, which is welcome to episode 415 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show by introducing you to a band that I just discovered called The Underwater Bosses. The song that we're listening to right now is called KGB Tsunami. It's from their album Aqua La Vista, which is one of the coolest album names I've ever heard. This album just came out uh, last month in March, and it's really good. I had a hard time picking which song that I wanted to use this week on the show. I ultimately went with KGB Tsunami because the movie that we're talking about this week started life as a Russian or Soviet Union science fiction film. We're going to be talking about the 1962 movie Planeta Burr, and I'm still not 100% sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly, but we're going to talk about it with longtime friend of the show, Stephen D. Sullivan. He's going to join me to discuss this movie, and then we're going to talk about the two American movies that spun out of that. And we'll talk a little bit with Steve about how that happened. The other two movies that we'll be discussing are 1965's Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet and then 1968's Voyage to the Planet of the Prehistoric Women. Discussing these three films is something that I've wanted to do for a while with Steve, and I was thrilled when we were able to make it happen. He's had some things going on with him that have made him incredibly busy, and I've been trying to get as many podcast recordings as I can in the can as we gear up for Monster Bash happening later this year in June. So big thanks to Steve for making that happen and being flexible with my schedule. I hope you guys and gals dig the conversation because I dug recording it and then listening to it again while I edited it. Now that's not all that's happening in this week of the show. We've got not one, not two, but kind of like the topic this week, we have three segments that we're going to be sharing with you. Of course, we've got Kenny's Famous Monsters of Filmland segment, so we'll be hearing that. We'll also be hearing from Dr. Tongue, another report on the world of monster collectibles, and Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories. We're going to get into all of that and update you about a few other things going on with me and Monster Kid Radio and the Monster Movie Madness Tournament and everything else right after this. two together in a love tainted by strange, sinister terror. The siren song of the sea, pulsating like a bongo beat, calling, driving the sea people. You saw how she looked at me. 
how she spoke to me. She's one of them. She's one of the sea people, and Johnny, I'm so afraid. You're a stranger here, and I guess you don't know what everybody here knows. Ellen, dear. In the past two years, Morris had two boyfriends, and they're both dead now. From award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan, White Zombie, a new novel based on the classic motion picture. What do you see? Neil asked. Madeline peered into the wine glass, pretending to be a fortune teller. And for a moment, her head reeled. She did see something within the depths of the cup. Terrible dark eyes staring up at her, boring into her mind. The eyes of that awful man they'd encountered in the road. You see? She felt dizzy now, really dizzy, and her throat was tight, as if cold hands were closing around her neck. What is it? Neil asked, concerned. The eyes burned into her. She couldn't breathe. I see, she managed to gasp, death. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com There is no other way. Tobor, the most amazing, the most fantastic creation of man's mind. Oh, he looks alive. For Tobor can live where no human can breathe in the airless atmosphere of outer space. And the nation first to conquer space controls the world. Electronic scientists have designed a practical spaceship. Atomic power makes space travel possible, needing only the most valuable of all secret scientific achievements. Space conquering giants that man can control. Tobor is alive. For even though much work remains before he's completed, he is already a sentient being, a necessary adjunct to the recording of all experiences our human space crews may later encounter. Since we cannot get in to see Nordstrom's secrets for ourselves, we must induce him to come out and tell them to us. They have no news of Professor Nordstrom or the boy. Neither has the Los Angeles Police Department or the FBI. I take it you want the formulae for my extrasensory transmission method. Gramps, don't you tell him! Don't you do it! Please, don't you tell him! No, Gramps, don't! All right! 
you win. Tobor bringing you chills you've never known before. Tobor, the most human outer space man ever seen on Earth. Be sure to see Tobor. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you some stories contained in the EC Horror Comics. Today's story is The Mad Magician. No, not the Vincent Price movie. The comic story from The Haunt of Fear, number 15 the May-June issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Wally Wood and Harry Harrison. So sit back, relax, and prepare for another chilling tale. Once upon a time, there was a famous magician, Boris Pataja. Pataja performed his magic for adoring crowds. One of his tricks was the famous sawing a person in half. However, Pataja believed it was possible to actually cut a person in two and put them back together again for real, without any magician's trickery. In his remote bat-ridden castle up on a hill, he attempted this feat on a man he captured on a lonely mountain road. This attempt was not a success. Sometime later, a reporter, Jim Crane, and his wife Alice set off on a long drive. They were on the same road that a body was reported to have been found that was cut in two. Alice was very nervous about this creepy area. Somehow, Jim was unable to navigate a sharp turn and the car plunged off the road and down the hill. Pataja heard the crash and set out to find the victims. Jim was unconscious and the magician carried him back to his castle, accompanied by Alice. Jim was able to rest and regain his health. Pataja welcomed them both to his dinner table, where he slipped them some knockout powder. The mad magician wanted to try his trick again. He chained Jim up, but his wife awoke, saw that Pataja was insane, and escaped the castle. Pataja followed her out into the rainy dark night. He threw an axe at her, but she dodged out of its way and it hit a power line. Her leap caused her to tumble down the mountain. Believing her to be dead, Pataja returned to his castle to work on Jim. The crazed magician tied him to a table and turned on his electric saw. Certainly there is no hope for Jim. Alice survived her fall down the hill, and believing her husband was surely dead, made her way to a local farmer's house where she called the police. As they made their way up the windy mountain road, they saw that an axe had caused a live wire to be down. When they arrived at the castle, they found the magician, Boris Pataja, trying to get his electric saw to work. The power had gone out. To escape the police, the maniac leaped from a window. Pataja had cut his victims in half with the saw and cut the power out with an axe. He also cut himself in half by landing on a metal fence. Yeesh. The end. I hope you enjoyed that spooky tale. This was a bit of an uneven story. It isn't clear why Pataja thought he could reassemble his victims. The story makes no attempt to explain it. Also, why nurse Jim back to health just to roofie him and his wife? And finally, I suppose it took some time for the axe to cut through the wire, 
The saw was able to start, but apparently conked out before it reached Jim. Not sure how that worked, but whatever. My advice with reading these stories is, in short, just go with it. We get an eerie castle, an insane magician, and a rainy, windswept countryside. That's good enough for me. The artist did a fine job, especially on the characters' faces. Boris Pataja looks tall, slim, and dashing, with a thin mustache and slick back gray hair. He often has shadows across his face and a maniacal, intense grin. He's an effective horror bad guy. The castle up on the hill also works. It's full of turrets and lightning in the sky, just the classic setting a true monster kid would love. If you're interested in a copy of The Haunt of Fear, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics and bat books for beginners, where we talk about Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Warning Godzilla versus the Thing, a shattering motion picture, not for the weak of heart. Here in all its astounding realism is a soul shocking experience. How much terror can you stand? What was this thing of unbelievable and unequaled terror that challenged Godzilla to a battle of unhuman strength versus supernatural evil? Godzilla versus the Thing. See the war of the giants. See the birth of the world's most terrifying monster. See armies of the world destroyed by the Thing. The producers of Godzilla versus the Thing issue warning to those who cannot take its full horror. To you with guts, you must see Godzilla vs. The Thing from the beginning in color scope from American International. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim.
Why do we hunt in a place where there are only a few dead trees and a few animals to give to the fire? When there's plenty there. There are shadows there, deep and cold, and dirt that eats men. And animals far more terrible than any you've seen. What lies beyond? Just as modern man reaches into outer space, primitive man searches beyond his horizons, finding new and terrifying creatures in his prehistoric world. Massive beasts, his simple weapons only anger. Killer dogs he had not yet learned to tame. His courage proves the teenage caveman all man, winning for him a woman's love. We could make a place to lie down on, space above the floor so the cold couldn't reach us as we slept. A love pure and passionate and pagan, strengthening his courage, his daring, his dreams. I came to give this earth to the clan. See the awe-inspiring beasts in a teenage caveman's world. See reptilian monsters locked into the death battle. presents Dr. Tongue's World of Monster Collectibles, spanning the globe looking for monster goo so you don't have to. Dateline the Internet. There seems to be a plethora of t-shirt companies popping up out there, making some pretty rad clothes these days. In this segment, I want to bring your attention around to some you may want to look into when you're getting ready for your next big convention or simply gaming night with friends. First up, we have Creepsville 666, that's Creepsville with a K, operating out of Southern California and offering up a slew of nice, scary goodness. These folks specialize in the eerie and the macabre spectrum when it comes to clothing and accessories, so don't get too frightened looking at that online catalog. The models won't bite. Hard. Creepsville 666 offers up a great selection of licensed goo featuring everything from horror host Vampira to Vincent Price up to a new line of Elvira merchandise. Check them out. If you're looking for more traditional monstery goodness in your t-shirt selection, head on over to the famous Monsters of Filmland site and their Captain Company department. There you will find a nice stash of classic monster t-shirts and accessories that should satisfy the most discerning of creature lovers everywhere. They have great reproduction classics of FM monster covers, all the way to the FM logo shirts featuring the good old shock monster. My last recommendation has a ton of product in their catalog. I mean a ton. And they feature lots of good old school images that should satisfy your vintage loving heart. Adam Age Industries has the most impressive array of shirts, everything from Edison's Frankenstein, on through Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster, Bava in Argento Tees, up to a recently announced licensing deal with Hammer Productions, although they only currently have two shirts available. Links to all these companies are on the MKR website for your perusal. Happy shopping! Artist Spotlight! I love my monsters in figural form. It's a fault of mine. And this next young man does a bang-up job of bringing said figures to fruition, albeit 
on a rather limited basis. Charlie Lone Wolf, not really sure if that's his real name, doubt it, operating under the name Wolfman138 on Instagram, creates amazingly wonderful figures from the realm of horror films, punk rock, and beyond. His imaginative take on known characters is amazing in his execution. Not only are the figures sculpted by Charlie, but he also casts them up and paints them as well. I personally have a set of the Gargantuas from War of the Gargantuas, as well as a Blind Dead Templar. Current offerings in his Etsy shop, appropriately named House of Wolfman, are several of the monsters from the Monster Squad films from the 80s, as well as Beef and Phantom from De Palma's Phantom of Paradise. Most, if not all, of his figures require you to pre-order them, and then that production run is made for how many are initially ordered. I can't wait to see what he has up his sleeve in the future. Spotlight on Vintage Monster Toys! The vintage monster figures I'm going to discuss today, I was never privy to when I was younger, but man, I would have loved to have had them as a child. Unfortunately, now as an adult, I'm forced to pay just large sums of money to obtain them. Tomlin Toys was a UK-based toy company that dealt in a lot of what I like to call not-quite-there products. You know, the toys you see in the cheapy toy aisles at the supermarket that aren't the main licensed toys, but close enough for Grandma to pick up for little Jimmy because he asked for a Star Wars toy for his birthday? Gobots, anyone? Tomlin made lots of these types of toys. Knockoffs. Essentially bucking copyrights and saving lots of money in the process. They made knockoffs of Strawberry Shortcake, $6 million man, Star Wars, Star Trek, and jumped onto the monster craze without paying a dollar one to copyright holders. The Tomlin series I'm going to talk about today is Famous Monsters of Legend. Once again, close enough, but not quite. Right? Starting in the mid-70s, Tomlin produced a series of four 8-inch monster figures under this title. In the assortment were the Cyclops, the Fly, the Morlock, and the Yeti. The first three were based, insert air quotes here, on movie characters from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, the original Fly with Vincent Price, and George Powell's version of the Time Machine. The fourth one was the only one that was actually based on a monster of legend, the abominable snowman, the Yeti. And in my mind, the face kind of looks like Ernest Borgnine from the final of Devil's Reign minus the horns. But I digress. The card art for the figures was lifted directly from a popular coloring book of the time called The Monster Gallery Coloring Book by Mark Savi. It was never been established if Savi ever was compensated for the use of the art, but I would be surprised if he was. And that word monster in the title, famous monsters of legend, the font closely resembles the FM magazine style. In the late 1970s, with the popularity of Star Wars at an all-time high, Tomlin released a set of 8-inch figures called Star Raiders. And in the series, the monsters were re-released in Star Raiders packaging and with zippy new space names like Rytle, Oove, Biko, and Tago. In 1980, a Wave 2 of Famous Monsters of Legend was released in a rather uber-limited edition with new card art and nifty new features like glow-in-the-dark head, hands, and feet. The original four were re-released, as well as four new characters, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, Wolfman, and the Mummy. These figures are some of the rarest and hardest of all monster collectibles to find anywhere, packaged or not. And of course, in Tomlin fashion, Sticking to the not-quite-there edict that they have come to be known for, the four new figures struck close resemblances to the already-released 8-inch Lincoln monster figures. 
For more insight on these great figures, head on over to the Plaid Stallion-sponsored website, TomlinMonsters.com. Got any sneak peeks of monster merchandise coming out soon? Drop Derek a line, he'll forward it along to me at MKR. Until next time, this is Mark Dr. Tom Peterson saying, Happy Monster Collecting, everybody! I'm out! Peace! Nine minutes before countdown. Nine minutes while the world waits and wonders. Share, if you dare, the unbearable suspense of men and women who have never in their lives faced greater peril. The day the earth caught fire will burn itself into your memory. Is it fiction or is it fact? What's the nutation of the earth? Nutation? Well, it's a slight oscillation on the earth's axis, caused by the pull of the sun and the moon it's on changed. the equator. You see, there's a slight bulge on the... There's also an item here about axis rotation. There's been an 11 degree variation, whatever that may mean. They've shifted the tilt of the Earth. The stupid, crazy, irresponsible bunglers. They've finally done it. From the presses of Fleet Street, today's headlines blaze into tomorrow's history. And here are the people who report the most sensational story a newspaper has ever had to print. A story that might be the last it ever prints. These are the people caught in the most explosive threat ever to face the world. Jeannie, the girl on the government switchboard, and Stenning, one-time ace reporter, striving to make a comeback in life and love. You happen to walk in at the end of a black Monday. Well, what about a foggy Sunday? Oh, come on now, Pete. We're too old for I'm not too old. Look, I said you could use the phone, oh, and that's all. Oh, come on now, Jeannie. What do you want? The slow build-up? Hot hands at the movies? Knee troubles in a coffee bar? This is Maguire. The science editor who unearths the deadly facts. What the hell kind of fog only comes up to the fourth floor? God knows better than to come up here. This place is like the anti-room to hell. It's really chaos at London Airport, Mr. McGuire. It usually is. Question is, how do we get home tonight? Yes, I know. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> yeah. The countdown must have started by now. Drink up, then. Here's how. Twenty-two. Twenty-one. To the luck of the human race. The day the earth caught fire fearlessly tackles a ferocious subject. It will seize your imagination, stretch your nerves with suspense more compelling than any you have known in a cinema before. Four, three, two, Imagine the world around you is nothing but an illusion. Creatures of legend wage endless wars between shadow and light, but you never see it. Even now, dark forces threaten reality as we know it, but most people never know they exist. This is the world I walk in. I am called Byron, and these are my chronicles.
The Byron Chronicles, available at ericbosbypresents.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Two giant monster films, The War of the Gargantuas and Monster Zero. See the two mighty Gargantuas battle to the death. And on the same program, Rodan and Godzilla join forces to destroy the deadly Monster Zero. The War of the Gargantuas and Monster Zero. Both in color. Rated G. General audience from United Productions of America. A subsidiary of DEI Industries. Hello, Monster Kid Radio heads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Three films this week were not featured in Famous Monsters, but one of the stars was. Basil Rathbone, star of Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, was heard from in Monster World No. 7 from March of 1966. It was written while he was filming Queen of Blood, which had a cameo from the editor of Famous Monsters, Forey Ackerman. The article is six pages long and comes with five photos. It begins by describing Mr. Rathbone's disdain at being considered a horror movie actor, despite his various credits within the genre, like Son of Frankenstein and Comedy of Terrors, who would rather be remembered for his roles in Shakespeare and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. The article goes on to mention some strange stories Rathbone shared while on the set of Queen of Blood. He also shared some comments on Boris Karloff, saying he would never retire. Forey goes on to describe his brief scene with Basil Rathbone in Queen of Blood. A few moments later, I found myself playing a scene wherein, as Mr. Rathbone's assistant, I followed him into a communications room which I believe was supposed to be either in a space station or on the moon. And on a machine called a video log, we were shown a scene of an alien rocket ship crash landing on Mars. After we witnessed the disaster, Mr. Rathbone turned to me, just inches from my face, looking me square in the eye, and said, I am scheduling a press conference for 8 o'clock tomorrow. We rehearsed and shot the scene a half dozen times or more, and sometimes he pronounced the word scheduling, as it was natural for him, an Englishman, to do, and others gave it the American K, sound of scheduling. I wonder which will be heard on the screen. But mainly at the time, my mind was preoccupied by the thought that this was Wolf von Frankenstein, that I was standing opposite, that I had never dreamed when I was only 22 years old, and thrilled to the son of Frankenstein when it was new that one day I would be standing face to face, in makeup, before a motion picture camera, being photographed in a scene with Basil Rathbone. Planet of Blood, its latest title, may not win an Academy Award, and certainly I won't get any honorable mention for diction because I don't say anything, but I was pleased as punch to appear in the picture, I only hope that many of you dedicated Monster fans can sometime in your life have as satisfactory an experience. This article was reprinted in FM58 and FM91. A year later, Basil Rathbone passed away, and I was surprised he was not given a full-blown obituary in FM. But I did find his passing mentioned in an obituary for eight celebrities in FM47 from September of 1967. The other stars were Spencer Tracy, Charles Beaumont, Barbara Payton, Misha Auer, Claude Rains, Walt Disney, and Nelson Eddy. Each received a paragraph about their achievements in the genre, but for some unknown reason, there are only two photos of Basel, and no mention of him in the text, perhaps out of respect for his desire not to be known as a monster actor, 
before he refrained from mentioning his impressive works in the genre again. It can't be Sherlock Holmes. He's dead. Is he, Norman? I doubt it. But if you were to say to me tomorrow, Sherlock Holmes is dead. The instrument of death was a spider. There's no doubt about it, Lestrade. And the bite of the creature drove these pajama suicides to kill themselves. Look out, Watson! Those insects are deadly! We're currently in the second round of the Monster Movie Madness tournament that we're doing here on Monster Kid Radio, trying to figure out what the top monster movie is. We're talking about favorite monster movies from the beginning of the silent era up through 1968. And in round two, well, it's time for you to help us figure out what the Sinister 16 titles will be that'll be moving on to the next round. Head over to tinyurl.com slash mmmadness2019. And you'll be taking to a page where you go in and you just pick which movie you prefer out of the two lineups. Now, Steve and I did an episode that you may have already heard in the feed where we broke down who won the first round and what movies are up against each other this time around. And you can find that episode in the archives. Otherwise, just head on over. Again, it's tinyurl.com slash mmmadness2019. And make sure you do it before April 22nd because that's the cutoff. Then Steve and I will come back with another special episode letting you know who's moving forward to round three. The Underwater Bosses have a website. You can go to underwaterbosses.com to learn everything you need to know about the band, including where you can find them live. In fact, as of this recording and this release, tomorrow night in Ogdensburg, New York, they're going to be playing at Sully's Tavern at 9 p.m. That's on April 19th. On May 10th, they're going to be playing at Rose and Crown in Rochester, New York at 9 p.m. And then on June 1st, that's a Saturday. They're going to be playing at the Wildflowers Armory Crafted Fest in Syracuse, New York. Again, head over to underwaterbosses.com to get show listings and their bio and videos and photos. And eventually there's going to be some merch. And if you want to pick up their album, head over to underwaterbosses.bandcamp.com and you can pick up Aqua La Vista for $10. That's the MP3s and the physical CD. 10 bucks the steel man queen of blood a tantalizing mystifying enigma We have a good supply of blood plasma with us. We'll use that to feed her. And if we run out of plasma, Commander?
Super Horror Showcase, over four and a half hours of non-stop, all-scare terror, starring Christopher Lee, Lex Barker, John Ashley, and the all-dead inhuman creatures from the tombs of doom. Chiller Carnival of Blood. Go to see Chiller Carnival of Blood in Super Creature Color, rated GP. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. It's been a while since you've heard his voice on Monster Kid Radio, but he's always listening with you. I mean, not like right next to you listening, but he's been listening. So he hears what you're saying when you come on the show with feedback or whatever. It's Steve Sullivan. How you doing, man? <laughs> Here I am. I'm not a spooky ghost hanging over your shoulder, but I do <laughs> see all, know all. <laughs> no, not really. This just got weird is what I'm saying. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, this whole watching it with you and then sort of listening with you, that, that was a little strange. I don't know where that was coming from. That was just kind of odd. Anyway. <laughs> but it's true. I, I do try to keep up, and I'm, I'm a little bit behind. Uh, ah. But by the time y'all hear this, I will have caught up and, and be right there with you. There you go. There whether you it's go. on uh, TuneIn, on the Roku, or whether it's over iTunes, or however you listen. Uh, Spotify, YouTube, smoke signals, whatever. Um. <laughs> you do smoke signals? Wow. Well, you know. <laughs> That must be hard. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, Derek does telegraph. Beep, 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 beep. Uh, I'm working on semaphore, actually. That's, there you, you know, go. the flags. Anyway. You get Monty Python to help with that. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about, Steve? I don't know. How's it <laughs> going, been, Derek? So, so, listeners, Steve and I have been talking about movies, comics, copyright for the past 25, 30 minutes. And Steve says, let's go ahead and start recording. I'm like, you know, you're probably right. Let's let's hit record and do this. And here we are doing it again. We're just 
gabbing about whatever. Let's let the listeners know what you've been up to. Well, what's new in the world of Stephen D. Sullivan? Well, as you probably know, Dr. Cushing wrapped up his run online. And uh, you can read the whole thing free on my site, or you can join my Patreon, CushingHorrors.com, and uh, get a, a more coherent uh, chapter version of it where you can kind of read it all at once. And uh, right now I've got, finally, the Frost Harrow series is coming out, a new chapter every two weeks. So that's cool. You can check that out on my site or, again, on my Patreon, which is still CushingHorrors.com. Right on. So for listeners who don't know, Cushing Horrors is a classic monster mash, monster rally type story with a character named Cushing because, I mean, we're monster kids. Of course, there's a Cushing. Uh, there's a wax museum-ish kind of element. It's very cool. And Frost Harrow is Dark Shadows flavored, right? Yeah, it's kind of an adult version of Dark Shadows or Dark Shadows meets Stephen King. I wrote the original stories about 20 years ago now, and I kept saying, oh, I'm going to bring it out here, bring it out there. I had it online right at the beginning of the ebook revolution before there were actually things like mm, Kindle and Nook and other things that allowed you to actually read ebooks. So after that, I wanted to update it, I thought, and I spent 20 years playing around with updating it, and I finally said, oh, screw this. It's never going to come out if I keep tinkering with it. And, you know, the originals are not bad. They're not the writing I would do today, but they're not bad. And they actually move really quickly, and they're really exciting. So you're getting the original pretty much uncut, unvarnished ones, although I, I have gone and fixed some point-of-view problems and things like that occasionally. Okay. But if you like Dark Shadows and you like Stephen King, it's goosebumps for grown-ups. It's a, an ongoing serial. And like you said, Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a Monster Mash tribute to all monster mashers and that may have a sequel or four in the works too at some point you and i could end up talking about writing <laughs> for hours on end and actually at some point i just started reading your book too you've oh. got a new book out so tell them the title and i'll endorse uh, how good the first two stories are <laughs> well I, I appreciate you saying that so yeah i've got this book out now <laughs> finally decided to pull the trigger and join the independent publishing scene with Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions series. I'm currently working on volume two right now. As of this recording, I'm waiting, like I said on my blog over at monsterkidwriter.com, I'm right now in the longest three to five business day stretch that I've ever had as an author because I'm waiting for Amazon to send me the proof <laughs> <laughs> for the printing, uh, for the printed edition or what I'm calling the uh, dead tree or undead tree edition. Yeah, dead tree. I saw yeah. that. On. Yeah. I hope it looks good. Uh, it's the first time I've designed a book for print on Amazon. I think I pulled it off okay, but we'll find out as soon as I get a book in the mailbox and uh, it'll be available. And I've decided because it's a shorter book, I'm going to sell it for six bucks. Oh, good for you. That's a, a very inexpensive price, although twice what the e-edition is for those of you that read ebooks. But I'll probably order the print edition too because it'd be nice to have on my shelf. I might even sign it for you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> see see what you can get there you go there you know is dr cushing available as a physical print not book not yet not will yet. it be i have to catch up on um, as uh probably everyone that follows me on social media at all knows there have been a lot of family stuff going on in my house and i need to catch up and put some of that behind which i hope to have uh well and truly behind me by the end of april and then with any luck dr cushing will be out 
you know, sometime before the end of the year. Certainly in time for Halloween, if not sooner, I hope. Nice. Well, keep us posted, man. And I know that I play the, the promo for Cushing Horrors and uh, Daikaiju Attack semi-regularly here on the show. Yeah, and Daikaiju Attack still available in all right. print and ebook forms. And it's one of my favorite things that I've ever written. And boy, there are sequels there too. So, so what I'm saying is if y'all go out and you buy this stuff in enough quantities, I'll go, hey – People want this, and I'll do more. So that's easy. Or you can throw a couple of bucks to me at Patreon every month and then talk to me directly about the fact that you want that sequel to Die Kaiju Attack. I mean, listeners, you know, we like to support our fellow monster kids around here, and Steve is one of the monster kiddiest I know, so... That sounds really that's a, that's a terrible adjective, but you know what I mean. So oh, go check out Steve's other stuff. stuff squared away. I am still working on the monster RPG. Nice. And that is, you know, I've had a number of successful playtests, and honestly, my life has just been too busy for the last, most of the last six months to go in and, and uh, really dig through the, the mechanics of it and get it to the point where I can share it with, with people. I don't know if we'll do a Kickstarter with that or if I'll just figure out some way to publish it. or uh, it'll, it'll be out there. Can't promise it in 2019, but at some point it'll be out there. It's working really well and it seems really, really cool. And it's something in theory you can pick up and play in an evening and then, you know, kids playing adventures as they come out. Very cool. With very, very little prep. Very, very cool. So listeners, keep your eyes open for that. In the meantime, though, you can listen to Steve and I talk about not one, not two, but three films in this episode. But you know there's something else we got to do before we do that, Steve. Yeah, you know, I think there might be. And I was going to remind you of that in case you didn't do it. But let's see if you can put me on the spot here. <laughs> every time we have somebody on the show now, with every episode, we try to play a game that we call the Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. There are no wrong answers. And I know I call it a game. But really, it's a conversation starter. And uh, I don't know if Steve and I really need help starting conversations with each other. Uh, given that we've been on Skype for over an hour now. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, there you go. Steve, are you ready to play the Classic Five? I'm going to give it my best shot. We'll see if my brain works today. Okay, okay, here we go. Card number one, this is actually from uh, the new deck that I'm working on. Ooh, no chance I can prep for this one, folks. (laughs) Which movie do you prefer? The Slime People or The Alligator People? Oh, that's a good question. You know, The Alligator People has really a classic feel to it. That I, I enjoy the slime people, but I don't think I've seen it probably enough. The alligator people, it's kind of got that universal horror monster movie thing. Is it a universal film? I'd have um, to look it up. No, see. I don't think it is. It's got doesn't it have does it have Lon Chaney Jr. It in it? It does. Anyway, it's it's hard to not love something that has Lon Chaney Jr. and a guy walking around in uh, alligator makeup with a giant alligator head on it on his shoulders at the end of the film. So I don't think that's a spoiler because it, it certainly no. was in the posters and the trailers. Right. It's so alligator people for me. Inside this strange forbidding plantation on the edge of the death laden bios, there is a horror beyond belief. A scientist turns his cobalt rays on the revolting scaly monarchs of the swamps to transform men into hideous living gargoyles whose faces must be forever hidden from human sight. He didn't have to hit him. Quicker, simplest way, Doctor. But these are people. You don't handle them like animals. Beverly Garland as the unwelcome visitor, haunted by the fear that the man she loves has become one of them. 
What are you doing? I'm not leaving here, Mrs. Hawthorne, until I get the answers to the questions that brought me here. What have you done with my husband? Lon Chaney as the hook-armed, hate-maddened Cajun. I'll kill you, alligator man! Just like I'd kill any four-legged gator! Suspense that will clutch you like quicksand. <coughs> pulling you down into bottomless depths of suffocating horror. I love the way that alligator man looks. I, I know it's rubbery and it's, a, it's just a mask, but I love it. And if somebody would make an action figure of that. Yeah, me too. Me too. And, and slime people is fun. And I probably really need to rewatch it. But between those two alligator people. All right. So card number two, the Munsters or the Adams family. Ooh, I've heard you ask someone else this fairly recently. And I thought, here's the thing. As a kid, it was the Munsters, I think, all the way. Okay. Because Munsters... As an adult, I'm going to go with the Adams Family because I think it's actually a much more interesting show on a, on a number of levels, and I think it still plays really well. The cast is brilliant, and just the kind of whole twisted concept of this macabre family that you know has a train set that blows up. Even as a kid, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, right? The train set that blew up. And so despite the fact that I, I love the monsters and I love all the monstery things and the monsters, I gotta say the the writing is just not nearly as, as clever, I don't think, on the monsters generally. You know, okay. any given show, you never know. But yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with the Adams family. Okay. Uh card number three, and uh, I'm pulling this from uh the new deck that I'm working on as well. Ooh. If you could live inside one classic monster movie, what would it be? Ooh, live inside one classic monster movie. Like be part that's, of that world. Right. That's yeah. that's tough to to kind of choose because then you have to think, well, I am I the hero? Am I the villain? Or am I a victim? <laughs> so you probably Your don't call. Wanna, Your call. <laughs> you probably don't want to choose one where you're the victim. You know, I mean the 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 Hammer Dracula series would be really kind of cool to live in if you were Dracula. <laughs> but if you're about anybody else in that series, you know, aside from maybe Van Helsing, and even he meets a kind of a violent end in at least one of the films, I'm not really sure that'd be a way to go. Uh, I'm going to say, maybe this is odd, too obvious. I would go for The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. I just love the fantasy and the adventure and the monsters and seven voyages and bad. And I think it would be fun to sail the seven seas with Sinbad. Maybe even if you end up being the victim, obviously I'm not going to be the beautiful damsel who's either being rescued or who's got magical powers. Steve, I've been the, trying real hard to keep the image of you uh, in that costume out of my brain and you went and did it anyway. Thank you. <laughs> so can I, go, can I go for the whole Sinbad universe of the three films, sure. even though I know they don't quite connect? Yeah, it's all Sinbad. Totally. So the Harry Harryhausen Sinbad universe would seem like a really good one. Although I got to tell you, it's always hard for me not to say the King Kong universe. And you know, if I think about it a little while ago, oh yeah, I should do King Kong instead because even even if I got rolled off the log, I'd get to see the dinosaurs first. No, <laughs> 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 it's not. It's hard not to go to a universe where there are actual dinosaurs still living today. Uh, and and King Kong, in some ways, is probably safer than Jurassic Park. Yeah, I think so. Probably. <laughs> yeah, as long as you stay away from uh, any of the movies that are like the day the Earth caught fire. 
Um, you know, any end of the world movies, probably a good, good choice right, to stay away from those. I want to go into the, into the uh, Island of Terror silicates. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I think I'll avoid that one. Don't think you want to be in a kaiju universe because there's way too much damage going on there. <laughs> I wouldn't so, mind be, being in a kaiju universe, but I'm living in the U.S. because they're all in Japan. It's cool. <laughs> They did come and attack New York, at least, and destroy all monsters and maybe some of the others, too. That's right. So, But Portland and the uh, Milwaukee-Chicago corridor, where I live, fairly safe from giant monster attacks. So maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But, yeah, I, I think I'll stick with the Harry's House and Fantasy Universe or, you know, the King Kong Adventurous Universe with dinosaurs in it. So you just said Portland area, fairly safe when it comes to giant monster attack. All I will say is... For now. <laughs> That's a tease, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, card number, what are we on? Four? What two universal monsters would you like to see fight it out in a new movie? Hmm. Well, you know, since I just kind of wrote this story, it's hard not to say the Wolfman and the Mummy. Because <laughs> we do get some of that in Dr. Cushing at some point. Uh, but let me, let me think about it and see if I can get a slightly deeper idea of that um, okay. beyond the, the obvious plug. Um, it was always kind of disappointing that the mummy didn't get to interact with the the other creatures. But another way, it would kind of be cool to do... I've always had this theory that like the 1950s monsters are in their own scientific universe and the right. 1930s and 40s monsters are in their own supernatural universe. Mm -hmm. And that makes crossing the creature over with the other ones really difficult but it might be really cool to have a, a creature versus the wolfman movie Ooh, like two these two primal forces of nature going the primal out. forces oh. of nature they're both misunderstood they're both you know kind of romantic heroes in their own kind of ways if i was to write one other than you know the werewolf mummy vampire thing that i just did writing the wolfman versus the creature would be a really exciting creative exercise to make that all fit and make it really cool. Yeah. Oh, I'm on board. I want to read that. Okay. <laughs> Not that right, you need all, anything else to put on your yeah. <laughs> Keep sending me notes, join my Patreon, and throw a hundred bucks <laughs> at me or whatever, and you may get that story sooner than you think. There you go. <laughs> so there is actually reference to a creature-like creature, I think, in dr cushing there's if i think it made it into the story if not it's in my pack story for sure <laughs> yeah the creature is not in the public domain but werewolves nope. are totally totally so you can do whatever you want with a wolfman character just don't call him larry talbot right and you know you can do what you want with amphibian characters right so you know and there's certainly you know you wonder and public domain is one of those things it's a little dodgy but boy it would be nice if we could establish that the creature from destination inner space which is uh, kind of inspired the logo for the monster conservancy mm -hmm. if that creature could be used in other things because that's a very very cool amphibian design anyway oh it looks so cool it is oh man and, and you and i talked about that years ago with christopher page that was a lot of fun so yes. check the archives for that it was back when i was doing two episodes a week yeah, uh, so it's or been a you while. can go to SaveMonsters.com and check out our facebook group that has it yeah there. yeah so yeah definitely i'm trying to get more listeners man i'm trying to get more downloads <laughs> come on <laughs> no that's cool um i would love to see that yeah no it'd be nice to listen i should listen to that show again we had a great time talking about it so as far as the creature kind of being more scientific than the supernatural i i i agree with you i don't have a problem putting them all together except i was a little disappointed and this is my creature fandom coming out as well i love the movie from the 80s the monster squad 
Right. And they have to get creative when they kill the werewolf. They have to get creative when they kill Dracula. They shoot the gill man standing with a shotgun and that's it. Come on. I oh, see, I you know? haven't remembered that end of it. I need to watch that film again. I traditionally have kind of a problem with monster comedies, aside from the Al- Abbott and Costello one. So when that Monster Squad came out, I didn't really like it. And part of it was the fact that they didn't really have the license to a lot of those characters. So right. their Gill Man isn't the Gill Man. I mean, they tried, but Universal passed. I don't right. anything to do with it. Well, and, you know, these things happen. Sometimes that's a good decision. Sometimes it's not. You know, I mean, there's the the reason there are Reese's Pieces in E.T. is because M&M's passed it up. The reason there's no mention of Dungeons and Dragons in E.T. is because the script pages that they showed for E.T. to Gary Gygax had the kids picking on each other. And he didn't think that was a good way for D&D to be portrayed. And he was right mm-hmm. in a way. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but if sure. They, if they showed him the longer, larger context, he might have said yes, and D and D would have been even bigger than it became. I don't know. That was the eighties, man. That was right in the middle of the satanic panic. It was. It was. And those of us that were working there were enjoying that immensely. <laughs> <laughs> well, some were enjoying it. Some were completely panicked by it. Yeah. Depending upon whether you were in the creative division or the marketing and management division. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, final question, final card. We're going to pull from the kaiju deck on this one. Ooh. Which kaiju suit do you wish you could try on for a day? Ooh, a suit to try on for a day. I'm going to have to go with my favorite Godzilla suit, which is the Mosugoji from Mothra versus Godzilla or Godzilla versus the Thing. Okay. I freaking love that suit, and it kind of appeared in Ghidra too, but it kind of got banged up between the two. But in Godzilla versus Mothra, Mothra versus Godzilla, not to be confused with Godzilla versus Mothra, and Mothra versus Godzilla from the 1960s, that suit is just wicked looking. It's like, this is the evil primal force Godzilla who's not going to be a hero for another couple of episodes anyway. It's a great looking suit, and I think that would be a lot of fun to do. If you wanted to just run and jump around, it might be fun to be like the the green gargantua <laughs> oh man yeah they got to move a lot more but in terms of wearing a, a really cool kaiju suit yeah i'm going for the uh, the 1960s mosugoji suit with uh, godzilla with the really wicked looking mean face very cool man well that was the classic five thanks for playing steve hope it was good for you it was good for me i think the listeners dig it too so yep awesome thank- Thank you so much. So why don't we go ahead and start talking about these movies, comrade? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't. Ah. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. That is another Russian word I know. I, I was right. telling Steve earlier, the only Russian I know is Nyet. But no, I know da. 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 And uh, borscht. I know. And, and vodka. And uh, <laughs> any <Bouchard>. other. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what we're talking about here, uh, like I said, is three movies. But in 1962, and I wasn't really aware of this, but in 1962, Russia put out or created, produced a film, a science fiction film. Planeta Burr. Is that the best way to pronounce it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you okay. know, not, uh, as I said earlier, I'm not really expert on Russian pronunciation, but I, I think Planeta Burr, otherwise sometimes known as Planeta Berg. Really? I'm not sure. I don't know enough of the Russian to tell you which is which, but I know when I bought my first copy of it on DVD, everyone was saying Planeta Berg, and hmm. now it's Planeta Burr. But I don't know enough Russian to know which might be the more accurate anglicization of that. Did I that I almost get that word out right? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, Planeta Burr. Okay. Otherwise known as Planet of Storms. Yeah, Planet of Storms is the English translation. And you know, I, I have to say, I have to admit my ignorance here. I was not really overly aware of the genre output of the Russian uh cinema, I guess, in the sixties. But when I look up Planet of Burr or Planet of Burr on the internet, on the Internet Movie Database, on Amazon, I'm finding links to a handful of other science fiction films that came out of Russia around this time that now I really, really want to see. <laughs> yeah, either Russia or the Soviet bloc, because in, in some sense, you know, it's, it's the Soviet Union then still. Yeah, that's true, and that's so true. Even stuff that's coming out from, I think it's Ufa in East Germany, is kind of Soviet bloc films, and that, mm-hmm. you know, I should be able to rattle off a couple of those titles, but I can't right now. It just slipped my mind. First Spaceship on Venus is based on an East German film from the Soviet. They used some of, um, I think, was it A Dream Come True in Queen of Blood? I think so, maybe. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a number of them. And yeah. uh, through whatever mechanisms worked in the 1960s, Roger Corman's group got a hold of these films to bring them to the U.S. or bring parts of them <laughs> to the U.S. And Planeta Burr is, you know, I haven't seen all of the others. But okay. Planeta Burr, on its own, is a, is a pretty cool film. You know, it's it's a really good, straight-up science fiction film. Yeah, it's got some monster stuff in it, but if you're looking for just, like, pure sci-fi. Sci-fi space adventure. Yeah. You know, from, from the days when we thought other planets could be habitable in our solar system. Right. I mean, they're going to Venus, right? And right. They, they find other things there. And there are stretches of this film where it does feel like flat-out science fiction, hardcore, you know, smart sci-fi. And then you get the monster stuff, too, thrown in. It's an interesting film. The budget obviously shows, as does its nation of origin. It is very Russian in spots. <laughs> <laughs> very Russian in terms of how right. they view individuality and, and kind of this, this implied, I don't know, group think. It's really... It's, Interesting you know, to watch. I mean, in some ways, like a lot of these are, and I, I have not seen all of the Eastern Bloc films by any means, but there's definitely communist propaganda overtones to oh, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Sometimes it's more obvious than not. We should mention that there's a, a really good set out right now of DVDs, two DVD set that has Planeta Burr, uh, and it has... Uh, one of the other ones that uh, Corman brought over was just the Battle Beyond the Sun. Mm-hmm. And then it has two more versions. It has the original Planet of Burr, Battle Beyond the Sun, which is based on a- another Soviet film called Nebo Zoviat. And uh, forgive me if that's not entirely right. <laughs> <laughs> but then it also has the two Roger Corman productions, including footage from Planet of Burr. And those would be Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet and, confusingly to everyone, Voyage to the Planet of the Prehistoric Women. Right. (laughs) So why those two ended up with nearly indistinguishable titles, I don't know. Yeah, I... hmm. It was very confusing to me as a kid when I first saw (laughs) saw these on TV. Wait, didn't I see this film? Where are the girls? (laughs) You know, it was like... (laughs) But so... Basically, Roger Corman took Planeta Burr, and he bought it because the production values were great, and they've got really good special effects. And then he made other films right. out of the film. Uh, the first one being Voyage to the Prehistoric, Pre-Historic Planet, which mm-hmm. is almost a straight translation. Almost. 
almost. Yeah, yeah they, they took the Russian version, they excised the woman, the one female character in the Russian version, and replaced her with the one female version in in the American release. And when we say right. release, the merge, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when we say release, just to clarify, Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet was released to television. Uh, as was the prehistoric planet film. There are some reports that one of these did get a theatrical, a limited theatrical run, but they are primarily designed to be played on television because that's what American International was doing at the time. Right. There's a lot of TV. Roger took the original Planeta Burr and he and his cohorts, which included Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich and people like that at the time, put out Voyage of the Prehistoric Planet, which is a very, very similar storyline to Planeta Burr, but has Faith the Merg in place of the Russian woman excise the love story subplot mm-hmm. entirely. Right, that's which gone. Means it's about 10 minutes shorter. And put in Basil Rathbone as well for another of the <laughs> Russian characters never seen. Yeah. So, but it's essentially kind of the same story. Pretty much and is. Then a couple of years later. They did it again. <laughs> they did it again. Peter Bogdanovich working under a pseudonym that I don't remember right at the moment had access to this and Roger was like, well, make another film out of this film, but you can't shoot anything with sound. <laughs> right. You don't have the money for the sound. That's why all the women are telepathically speaking with each other. <laughs> and Peter Bogdanovich kind of, I think brilliantly uh-huh. decided to play up the lost civilization angle and the, I'm sure Roger inspired kind of sex bomb angle and inserted whole new sets of footage with, Beautiful, I think mostly blonde, maybe entirely blonde women, right? <laughs> I mean, Mamie Van Dorn. Mamie right. Van Dorn is, in this is film. the queen of the the lost women and the right. the prehistoric women and Voyage of the Planet of Prehistoric Women. Now, my understanding is that uh, with the prehistoric woman film, they didn't go back to Planet of Burr. They went to prehistoric planet, so they right. wouldn't have to go and redub the uh, Russian actors with English languages. So they were able to just use the original dub there, and then kind of tweak it a little bit more and add these other elements. And Peter Bogdanovich did use the pseudonym. Supposedly he says that he didn't want to take credit for the film because he didn't really do all that much. Right. I don't know if that's accurate or if he saw the film and decided, no, I don't want my name on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's not a terrible film. I actually enjoy it. Uh, he did use the name Derek Thomas. Derek Thomas. And he yep. spelled Derek the right way. So, you know, <laughs> you know, my, my man there. There are bad ways to spell Derek. I suppose there must be any other way than how I spell it. Right. <laughs> I just lost every other non. You did. D R E K Derek. Listen, hi Derek's. <laughs> it was nice knowing you. Oh, I used to work with somebody named Derek, but he spelled his name D E R R I C. And whenever anybody asked for him, I said, "Oh, the one who spells his name wrong. He's over there." He did not like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. And I don't work there anymore. Go figure. Anyway, so Bogdanovich added. A number of sequences with, you know, these women that are wearing white hip hugger pants and uh, shell bikini tops mm-hmm. to this as the lost, the lost women. And, and honestly, it actually kind of, it kind of works. <laughs> it does kind of work. Um, just to kind of go back to, and Bogdanovich also did provide the voice. Uh, there's a lot of voiceover. There's a voiceover, which actually helps to tie the whole thing together. I think it does too. On the uh, a commentary I listened to, they said that they'd originally run it without the voiceover and Sam Arkoff, I think it was, said, why the hell is this movie silent all the time? And they were like, well, we didn't have any money to do sound equipment. He's like, you need a voiceover. Put in a voiceover. But 
the voiceover kind of works. It works as a point of view voiceover from from one of the characters in the film, mm. and uh, and it's pretty cool. Before we get too much further, we should, I think, at least give people some idea of what the story is about in the original Planet of Burr. Yeah, the original and then the second one, the story is very similar. Right. It's it's the far future of 2020. <laughs> and they're out in space doing their thing. My wife got a laugh out of the other night when I was playing one of the versions of this. Yeah. Like, the far future of 2020. In the U- U.S. version, they've cut in pictures from NASA file footage yeah. of you know, future things going on, as well as, I think in Voyage of the Prehistoric Planet, they also used stock footage from another Russian film, which I'm not sure it was the, uh, the one you mentioned earlier, or NATO Zoyov. But anyway, there's other stuff in there. So the far future... <laughs> of 2020. <laughs> three Soviet spaceships are going to Venus to land and explore. On the way there, just before they get there, one of them blows up. And the other two are left kind of short on supplies or short on manpower to actually do the mission that they're planning on. So they're going to orbit around Venus in, in two spaceships and the crew of one ship decides, well, we're not going to wait until relief gets here. We're here. We might as well go down and explore. So the two guys that are in that spaceship and the robot leave the woman who's in the spaceship with them behind. They go down to the surface. They crash their landing craft and that necessitates the other craft landing and trying to rescue them. Sure. And as they wander across the surface of Venus, they run into your giant man-eating plant monsters. They run into little dinosaur men that they shoot with their very, uh, in the original Soviet version, it's very obviously just like automatic pistol fire. I love I that, they, though. I love that. So I, it's ridiculous. It makes no sense. Why would you bring a traditional handgun to to the moon or to the Venus or whatever? But right, come on, but so yeah, cool. They, I love that aesthetic. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I think they sweetened those shots in the American version to make them sound a little a little spacier. Yeah. Than just blam, blam, yeah. blam. But in the Soviet version, they are just carrying automatic pistols around. Why not? Shooting at these lizard guys <laughs> and stuff. They do that and they have to, eventually the, they discover the other people have come to rescue them. And so the two groups try to find each other. The group in the second team has landed their whole spacecraft and they've got aboard it uh, this really great kind of land speeder car. Yeah, it looked really, and it, I was surprised to see it driving around on the planet's surface, not hidden by rocks. I, you know, you can kind of sometimes tell that they put the rocks in front of it so you don't have to see the wheels. But there's right, a couple yeah. of shots where it comes out from behind and it's just floating. It almost it's, looks it's like it's floating. Yeah. But then it'll hit a rut yeah. and it'll kind of bounce and you're like, oh, it's not really quite floating. But it still looks cool. It's a fairly successful floating car thing. Yeah. That they then have to, they discover that they've, because of, they picked a good landing spot and the guys have crashed across a sea, they can either go 20 miles across the sea or 45 miles around. They decide they're going to go across the sea in this floating car. They get attacked by a pterodactyl that they can't manage to drive off with their kind of machine gun thing mounted on the top. It looks like a space thing, but it sounds basically like some kind of a, a top-mounted cannon on, right. yeah. on a Jeep. They decide... So the way to escape the flying monster is actually to sink the car. They sink the car, which apparently the car is not designed to do. So why it has a 
a uh, a little uh, a stopper at the bottom of it to let water in. I don't know. <laughs> they sink the car, explore underwater because they're in spacesuits, right? They can they can explore underwater as well as above the water on this hostile planet. They discover kind of intimations of a lost civilization mm-hmm. under the waves. Eventually, they come back up. The other guys have been trying to to where they're going and they have one of the coolest robots in all of cinema robot john you really like john huh i love john okay (laughs) you know maybe he seems kind of weird and clunky to you but to me it seems like a really kind of cool practical effect oh i I loved him too don't i'm not saying i don't i like john i like the design of john and he feels very like he came out of the soviet union he he doesn't kind of Oh, total Soviet robot. He's kind of massive and clunky and very kind of practical effect looking. Mm-hmm. He's got a kind of a glass head. And he's got kind of huge, massive arms. He has a chest plate that you can open up to work inside him that you can actually reach entirely through the chest from the back and stuff. And he's he's a walking computer. He's helped to land the craft in the crash when they were having trouble he took over and that's probably why they're all survived and he talks in you know kind of a typical robot voice oh come on do it in russian do it in russian yeah i was gonna say with of course in russian so they and john are working trying to work their way back to the other guys the guys in the crash fall victim to uh, some kind of form of interplanetary malaria for a little while and they have to be nursed back to health the robot helps them fell giant trees to cross canyons and eventually there's a volcano and things blow up and then they have to deal with the the robot and trying to get back to their friends who are trying to meet them and there's all this chaos going on eventually not to give too much away on the interim the they get back to the, the rescue craft just as everything is really falling apart on planet surface and they leave. But before they leave, there is a revelation about what the people of planet Venus may or may not be like, whether there are humans there, what they're like. One of the cool prop scenes, I think, in all sci-fi cinema from this this era, there's that, and again, I don't want to give away too much, but there's a prop near the end of the film mm-hmm. that I would love to have that sucker really? sitting on the shelf. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. The, the prop that he takes back into the ship at the end. Wouldn't you love to have that? <laughs> It'd be awesome. I mean, it turns up in all three, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does, and two of them are public domain, so you can see them in other places. Though I'm going to recommend you get the the C, the DVD set because the the prints are generally very very good and better than other sources that you might. To sidetrack real quick about the DVD set, it is currently available. It's less than twelve dollars on Amazon. There will be a link in the show notes for you to go buy your own copy if you are so inclined. It is on my wish list right now. I don't have this copy. I want it. Badly, so I'll make sure it's on the wish list uh, for for me. And it's it's really good, and it's worth having. The only annoying thing I found about it is that it has two discs, but they're not labeled as to what movies are on each disc. Oh wow! <laughs> so there are four films, and it's like, okay, what's on what? And it it turns out that Planet of Burr and the the Battle Beyond the Sun are on the first disc. The two Corman films are on the other disc, and one of them has a, a full audio commentary track with, I think, Fred Olin Ray and someone else that I'm forgetting right at the moment. It's a pretty good commentary track in that it they talk a lot about what was 
not necessarily what's going on specifically in the films, but a lot of kind of associated trivia, what's going on, what was happening at the time, where where they were getting the films. I found it amusing and informative. I thought it was a, a quite a good track, considering it wasn't done by people that actually were directly hand-on sure. involved with the film. So that's the basic story of Planeta Burr. And if you watch Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, you'll pretty much get that story in pretty much the order that it was given with a few extra U.S. scenes. And Mm -hmm. I think it has some of the space station footage in that version, too. Some, but not as much uh, as the other one, because they went in and they reshot all this stuff with Basil Rathbone on the set of Queen of Blood. So (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So So Roger, being famously thrifty, had... Basil Rathbone available, had the Queen of Blood uh, space station sets available and shot footage with Basil Rathbone. But the exterior space station shots. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. I don't think those are from Planeta Burr. They're from Nebozatyov or something. And they're pretty cool looking too. But of the three versions, I'm going to recommend if you only see one, see Planeta Burr because that really? is the original. Okay. And yeah. I, I would say if you're only going to see one, if you think you're going to watch them all, I kind of would recommend you watch one of the U.S. versions first because the subtitles on the version that they have move so quickly that they're sometimes hard to read before they're off the screen. The picture on Planeta Burr is, is substantially better than the picture on the other two because it's a, it's a first-generation film transfer, okay. and the others are Roger copied the film from Russia into his copy of a film and then copied his copy of a film for the other one. On Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, uh, Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women. And you know, we're going to make that mistake over and over again because the two <laughs> very similar titles. The Prehistoric Women one, it's pretty obvious that the Bogdanovich shot scenes of the women look better than the Russian oh, yeah. scenes. Different film, different camera used. Yeah, of course. Right. And, and several years later, I mean, Planet of Burr is 62, Prehistoric Women is 68. So right. even six years of technology improvements and it's American tech versus Russian tech. And the Russian footage is copy of a copy. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So you're dealing with all that before we get into uh, the other two, I want to comment a little bit on the overall story. Uh, You talked about John and, and I like John quite a bit as well. What did you think of the way they had to activate John? It felt almost, almost mystical the way they tried to communicate him at the very beginning. Right. Yeah. No, it's very strange. John, John, like wake up, John. (laughs) Yeah, wake up, John. It's you know, and the weird thing is though, you see him and he looks like he's completely assembled. But then when they land on the planet, they say, "Well, he had to assemble him on planet." And I'm like, "Well, I think something might have been lost in translation there." Yeah, something. But there is kind of a very Svengali-like approach that the creator of the robot has with the robot. There's kind of just a little kind of mysticism like that kind of running through the film, mm-hmm. which Peter Bogdanovich obviously saw and played to the hilt in the prehistoric women film. Oh, yeah. So, the, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And, you know, at times it seems like the robot's just a robot, but at times it seems like the his creator is kind of mind-controlling him or somehow yeah. using some kind of mystical powers to activate him and make him, make him do what he's supposed to do. It's definitely mysterious and... Uh 
you know, I just, I really enjoy the character of John. I mean, how they used him. Is he a character? Yeah, I would say he's a character. I like the way yeah. they used him. They also use him not just for traditional, you know, physical tasks that a robot does, but they also have him calculating things and doing a lot of, uh, you know, mental work as well. Uh, he's the one that figures out that so many people can go down to the planet, but we won't be able to bring them all back up because of weight distribution. And just really interesting little moments here and there that, makes me think this is more than just a a cheapy space adventure and the robot at that point suggesting yes we can go down someone will have to stay behind that's obviously me right since i'm the robot which then actually plays out somewhat differently as the as the film gets near its climax which is kind of an interesting thing too so you know it's 1962 so it's before the lost in space robot it's before hal it's very early in robot technology. It's after Robbie from Forbidden Planet, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, someone's going to call up and, and prove me wrong. But honestly, I can't think of a really good robot between Robbie the Robot and Forbidden Planet and John in Planet Burr. You know, I'm not saying they're equivalent, but they're really interesting, strong robot characters that don't look like they're made out of a trash can. I'm trying to think of any, and the only other robot that's coming to me mind right now would be like Tobor the Great right. from 54, but he's got some limitations in terms of design. Right. All the robots I can think of between Robbie and John are kind of cheesy robots. I think so, too. I think... It's real easy to just kind of throw, like you said, a trash can, some foil and duct tape on something and say, okay, it's a robot. But when you really start to think about what it would look like, what it would do, how it would have to move, John is very bulky. And that, I think, makes sense for interplanetary exploration because you don't know what the gravity is going to be like. It's obviously built to withstand adverse conditions, although it has trouble with rain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, it it walks across the rocks. It's got kind of uh, prehensile claws on its feet. I mean, it's not looking like the the CGI robots from the new Lost in Space or anything like that. But as a practical effect, I think it's pretty terrific. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that the practical effects, which are all pretty terrific in this, are the reason that Corman bought them. Because managed to dub the actors or use the effect sequences, and you get a pretty terrific movie, whether it's Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet or Voyage to the Planet of the Prehistoric Women or Queen of Blood in the case of that film, which was also had, you know, Soviet block special effects in it. If you do it right, it really works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love I love the Robot John character. I think he's, he's just terrific. I would love to have a copy of a, of a small copy of him to sit on my shelf here somewhere. Oh, it'd be so cool. Yeah. It'd be so cool. That and the the little prop at the end of the film, which we won't talk about too much more. Now, all, all the men are given screen time, obviously. They're the main characters here. We have one woman. I apologize, listeners. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I'm going to butcher every cast member's name, even the director's name. So I'm, I'm just going to skip it and say, check out the Internet Movie Database to see who these people were. The one woman is named Masha in this version of the story. And... In the follow-up, it's Marsha, and then I really like what they did with Marsha in the third film. I, I really like the way they kind of wanted to make sure they didn't have to cut all the dialogue referring to Marsha, uh-huh. but without actually casting another woman to play a Marsha. Right. <laughs> it's a, a fortuitous thing that the woman character's name plays so well with just a slight tweak in English. And honestly, yeah. aside from Robot John, 
Masha Marsha is the only character I could name in the film at all. I mean, I can think of some of the, and there's uh there's a Kern. Kern comes up. That word gets spoken a lot. Um, I think that was a last name. And isn't there a Sherman? Maybe. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> All right, John, John's a, great. John's great. And well, I'm even. We have an Ilya. We have a Bobarov. We have a Alyosha, <laughs> Sherba, Kern, Masha are the ones that pop up right here yeah. on the IMDb, which aren't too bad. I mean, you no. know. Ilya Kuryakin was kind of a thing back in the 60s. So when I hear that, my ears always perk up at Ilya. But, really? Yeah. Okay. Man from Uncle? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Ilya Kuryakin, the first, yeah. <laughs> the first Russian words I probably ever learned as a kid. <laughs> so when I hear Ilya, that perks up. But I don't associate them necessarily with the the characters specifically. And I, I know from watching some of these others that some of these actors are at least one of them is kind of a famous Soviet era actor, but I'm not going to attempt to tell you which guy it is or attempt to pronounce his name. You know, these are solid era casting choices for the uh, producers and directors of the Soviet film. These are people that, you know, in the Soviet union who probably would have recognized a number of them. Sure. Um, and and props to the Soviets for having you know a woman on one of these space missions, even if she is kind of mostly uh, a romantic lead and does quite a lot of hand wringing when her her love is down on the planet and she's torn whether she should rescue him. And there's even a, a kind of a fantasy sequence where she's torn between thinking that he's going to come back as a triumphant hero and imagining horrible fates for him down on Venus on the planet of storms. But there's a woman in the crew, at least. <laughs> yep. At least we've got that. that that's, that's something, right? I mean, she's not going to compare with Nikki in the thing or, you know, or Pat in them, who are great women characters or Julie Adams from the creature. But there's six guys or five guys and a woman. That's better than having no women at all. And she gets to do stuff or not do stuff. She has choices that she makes. Oh, that's true. That she has to make on her own because when they're on the planet, they're cut off from her from communicating for most of the film. Although, happily, the Soviet fatherland is still there to give her guidance when she needs it. Right. Otherwise, God knows she might have made a, a foolish emotional choice. <laughs> oh, boy. So, you know, if you're looking for a more uh, serious approach, I suppose, to the, so the subject matter, I'd go with Planeta Burr, uh, for sure. You, you don't lose the monsters. Right. You do have the, the space aliens or whatever, but it does have more of a, a serious approach to its scientific exploration. And it was fascinating for me to watch. This was the first time I actually watched Planet of Burr was for this. And it was fascinating to watch just to kind of see what another culture was doing with 60s sci-fi. Cause I've watched so many science fiction films from the U S obviously. And, you know, down in Mexico, they were doing luchador movies in the sixties and, just to, and England was doing hammer stuff. So to see what another country, another society was doing when it came to science fiction genre stuff, it was exciting to see for that reason for me too. It's really interesting and just, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. It's very, yeah, there's some communism uh, threads just kind of woven in there just a little bit. It's not overbearing. Yeah. It's not, it's not overbearing in this film, but, but it's, it's present. If you know it's there, you're going to find it. Right. But it's not in the same way that the Battle Beyond the Sun, which is in Neto Zoviat, is really, you know, it's like a space race in which the Russians have to keep rescuing the Americans. 
<laughs> right. That's not happening in Planeta Burr. Planeta Burr is self-contained. It has overtones, and you can certainly see it. But you never feel like you're watching a total propaganda film. No, not at all. In 62, I think the Russians even knew the surface of Venus was uninhabitable. And if they didn't know it right then, they found it out very Shortly thereafter, I think they were the first people to land a probe on Venus successfully, which then crackled up and got burnt and crushed by the atmosphere. But anyway, it's a pretty serious sci-fi attempt and and really worth seeing. And not too hard to digest. No, not at all. But if you want the kind of Reader's Digest version. Go to Voyage to the Prehistoric (laughs) Planet that came out a few years later. So Corman acquired this with the intention of, of dubbing it for... English speaking audiences and it ended up going to television because again, that's what Air American International was doing at the time. See the career of Larry Buchanan to know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, so it came out as that and they replaced Masha with Marsha played by Faith. And I always mispronounce her last name too. I'm so bad at this. I always say to Merg, and I think I've heard that before. Her name's probably spoken in a trailer of some sort, so I just need to find it and listen right. to it. And then we also talked about Basil Rathbone. He appears as well. My understanding is that their scenes were shot maybe in a day. Right. <laughs> really, they don't yeah. have much to do. They're just replacing scenes from the original film with scenes with American actors so you could sell it in the U.S. the same way the original Godzilla exactly. or Gamera exactly. were sold in the U.S. They took that approach. Now, if you watch the movie and you see the opening credits, there's a whole bunch of American-sounding names. Well, that's because Corman gave them all American names right. in the credits because he didn't want people to think, oh, it's Russian, I don't want to watch it. So our lead characters are played by people like Robert and Kurt, you know? So, <laughs> But John gets to keep his name. And John, right. I didn't realize was a Russian name too, but apparently it came over, whatever, fine. It's, apparently. It's yeah. There's actually, right at the beginning when he's talking to John, there are kind of a couple of U.S. or American or words that we recognize in the U.S. And for a couple of minutes, I was like, is this scientist supposed to be from the U.S.? But then he went back to just speaking all Russian as it went on. But anyway, yeah, so Robot John gets to keep that. And that's yeah. that's obviously the less you have to change names, the fewer dubs you have to make. So that's yeah. always a good thing. Now, as with uh, prehistoric women, this film the director used a different name as well. He's credited as John Sebastian, but really it's Curtis Harrington who directed the American sequences, who also directed the American sequences for Queen of Blood. He was also the director of things like Night Tide. He did a, uh, an episode of Twilight Zone in the 80s, uh, did a lot of television work. You know, don't know why there's a different name used here, but there was. Well, they were young and, you know, yeah. sometimes you don't put your name on something you're not sure how it's going to turn out. <laughs> or, or No, I mean, that's just the plain truth. Yeah, you know, I know. I know. <laughs> or sometimes you say, yeah, I, I don't want to take credit for something that was shot largely by a completely different director. Right. Either of those, I, I think it's a fairly good reason to use a pseudonym. And this was really early in his career, too. I mean, he'd done a handful of shorts. He did Night Tide. And then he did this. So... I mean, real early in his career, which, again, that's the Corman approach, right? Right. You find the young talent, and, the, and then you throw them in over their heads, and you develop them. Which is a much nicer way of saying exploiting them. But, you know, is it is it exploitation if all of those people then go on to have careers? And so many of Corman's, his youth movement people, did go on to have some of them pretty significant careers. I mean, you have the guy you were just talking about who ended up doing a lot of TV work, but then you also have Francis Ford Coppola. He might have done a film or two that people are kind of fond of and maybe famous. And 
Peter Bogdanovich, the same thing, you know, who's also a terrific film historian and stuff too. Mm-hmm. So, and Ron Howard, there's some guy named Ron Howard. Didn't he do some kind of space movie sometime in the last couple, couple of years, something, uh, I don't know, had guys swinging laser swords or something. I don't know. Yeah. The, the name. He, he, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but the, my point is that, um, Roger, was not paying these people a lot of money, but he was giving them lots of experience. And I think that generally it worked to Roger's advantage, obviously, but I think it also worked to the advantage of the people that he was working with because they kind of got, in some sense, this was kind of the wild West of independent filmmaking when you had kind of the height of the drive-in movie craze and the television craze. And there was a lot of demand for films if you could get them out quick enough and a lot of people got to learn a lot of stuff very quickly. So I would happily worked for Corman back in the 60s, I think, even though I'm sure it was maddening yeah. at the time. You know, hey, here, shoot an entire new movie using all the footage from this movie and uh, a bunch of women scantily clad. And you don't get to actually shoot any dialogue with sound for them. <laughs> you have to anything you want them to say has to be dubbed later and that, that's both a maddening and a wonderful assignment in the same way that writing the uh the creature versus the wolfman story would be it's oh like, yeah right <laughs> it's like this is hard but you know it could be kind of cool the voices were not the only thing that were replaced for this version of the film the score was also replaced and Okay, film score yep. geek time. I really need to have like a stinger or something when I start talking about the music in these movies because I do <laughs> it so often. Ronald Stein was somebody who worked with American International a lot. He did a lot yep. of Roger Corman film, not just horror movies. I mean, he did a lot of their westerns and, and other things as well. And I'm a big fan of his work. So when I'm watching Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet and I start hearing something that sounds really familiar, I race to the computer and look, okay, oh, yeah, that is Ronald Stein. Now, what movie is that from? Now, the internet will tell you it's from Dinosaurus, which we talked about recently here on the show. But I swear I heard Attack of the Crab Monsters in there as well. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah. I did not run to uh, (laughs) my computer to figure it out, but I do have a a fairly good selection of Ronald Stein music that I play Mm -hmm. uh, on my CD player. I know, old school, from time to time. And I was like... Oh yeah, that's that's definitely one of Ronald's themes, and I I don't think it's all. I'm sure it's all not dinosaurs. I think there's you know one of the Terror from Beyond Space kind of movies or something like that too. That it's like yeah, that's that is not all dinosaurs. There's one of the at least one, probably more than one, of his other pictures mm-hmm. that actually has has theme music in Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. So, but I, th- I, I wasn't diligent enough to go back and load up those cues to see exactly which ones they are well and some of it sounded so familiar because i i have on cd and it's out of print now uh but there was a cd put out oh gosh when did it come out in the 90s i think and it was called not of this earth the film music of ronald stein and it's a collection of his music it's got some music from the terror dementia 13 not of this earth obviously attack of the 50 foot woman attack of the crab monsters spider babies on there If you can get your hands on this album, I recommend it because you do get to hear Lon Chaney singing the Spider Baby song as well as a little bit of his rehearsal. His rehearsal's in there, too. It's a great album, and I used to play the heck out of it. Yeah, I think it's Not of This Earth that maybe has a a chunk of music in in the thing. Because I have that album, too, and I'd have to go back and and check. But it works. I mean, you know, it's, it's and he gets a screen credit for it, too. 
he does get a screen credit, unlike a lot of the people who composed the uh, quote-unquote stock music that Universal appropriated or, or reused over and over and over again. A lot of times they didn't get all the credit. But at least Corman and company gave Stein credit when they reused some of his music, which, again, it's a common practice with some of these lower-budget productions, right? I right. mean, even we were talking about Creature from the Black Lagoon earlier. Even yep. that, some of the music in those three films, those creature films, came from other sources or ended up going into other films. Right, so, Absolutely. You know, it's just, it's a cost-saving thing. I doubt they had Ronald Stein write anything original right. for Prehistoric Planet. But, you know, it's comforting. And it's something that when I hear the music, I'm like, okay, I think that's Stein. I better double-check because now I feel warm and fuzzy. I've got a, I've got a, a familiar friend uh, right. <laughs> along for the ride here, you yep. know? I felt exactly the same way. It's funny because of the way I watched them this time. I watched the American versions first, and then I watched... Planet of Burr, the original Russian version, last. And so when we got to Planet of Burr, I, I was like, oh, I'd forgotten there's actually there's actually a little jaunty Russian theme song in Planet of Burr. <laughs> right. And, there's, and John the Robot actually has, he's got, it's not kind of a theme song, but there's a point where they actually use him like a big MP3 player. It was like, John, sing your song. And Robot John plays this kind of symphonic number that one of the characters had been whistling before. So I'd forgot there was kind of interesting use of music in the original film, all of which has been replaced in the, in the Corman versions and not unjustly. I mean, the, <laughs> the song, which gets literally sung twice during the film, once right at the end and once kind of in the middle montage of the film, is kind of like, Oh, okay. That what an unfortunate choice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying the song is necessarily bad. It's just how did we get an hour into this film without any actual singing going on and now suddenly we're getting singing. It's like from the 70s Godzilla films where suddenly there would be a, a you know, a, a Jet Jaguar song in the middle of the film. Yeah. You're like, "Oh, okay. All right. I guess they wanted to sell some 45s." But yeah, you know, that's anyway. true. That's true. And with the original v Russian version, too, I mean, who knows? It has a very propagandish kind of feel whenever it's right. introduced. And, and anyway, Ronald Stein's there. The music definitely is, the song is definitely kind of high on the list of wh why this seems like it, it has propaganda elements. Because yeah. the song is about the you know, gl glorious exploration and how Mm -hmm. you're bringing glory back to the Soviet Union or something like that. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I could have done without the song. Even if you just choose the music, that would have been fine. And Robot John does not sing the song. I should make that really clear. No, no. That would be weird. <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> that would be bizarre. Robot John sings. His singing is actually playing a symphony. So in addition to his computing power, he's basically your, your iPod of the time, too, which is cool. I'm good with that. So yeah, no, hearing Ronald Stein on Voyage of the Prehistoric Planet, it's it's kind of nice. Yeah, it's I really nice. I really appreciated it, and it does give even more kind of sci-fi rompiness to the film. Yes, because it is Ronald Stein as opposed to like this symphonic thing that the Russians were doing. Right. There's an insert shot when one of the men shows another one of the men a picture of his children. I believe that was reshot for the American releases. I know it was in Prehistoric Women. I don't remember seeing it in Prehistoric Planet, but it's um, a different picture, I think, isn't it? Is it? You know, I I did not notice that detail when I was watching this. I, I think it's a different picture. Uh, one character has newborn babies at home. Right. And there's three of them. <laughs> and so he, he numbers them, one, two, and three. He doesn't give them names because with triplets, it's easier with numbers. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> yep. Well, you hope when by the time he gets home, maybe they'll actually give them real names. But, you know, for all I know, in Russia, names are numbers sometimes. You know, it's like um, Ichi in, in Japan, which is number one, becomes Ichiro, which is number one son. So in some sense, some cultures do have, you know, the UR Ichi is the first one and then the next one is the one after that and, and so on. And so I, I suppose it could be that in Russia having kids named one, two and three might be normal. Right. <laughs> it might be, it wouldn't be here, but you know, then they probably don't name their children moon unit either. So <laughs> true. True. There is that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, yes, we've f- just got Zappa into, into Monster wow. Radio. Thank you very much. <laughs> so a few years after this one then, so in 1968, let's do the whole thing again. Yep. Except this time we're going to <laughs> cut even more out and put even more new stuff in. Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women, which is a mouthful to say. Right. Uh, and the only thing that I can think is that in 67, Hammer did release their film Prehistoric Women. So is there a chance they named this planet of the prehistoric woman to maybe play off of that? Boy, I suppose it's possible, but there may be, you know, the commentary guys had no idea why they did it. And I was thinking, oh, maybe I should dig up my Corman bio. And then I completely forgot to do it before we were looking to see if there was some reason for this. I don't think prehistoric women as a title would have sold a lot more tickets in 68, but... Having said that now, there was the 1 million years BC mm-hmm. craze, the Raquel Welsh cave woman craze, which, of which prehistoric women was part of that craze. We had, right. you know, Raquel Welsh running around and then we had the, you know, when dinosaurs ruled the earth. So there definitely was at this point a cave women kind of chic, I would guess, now that, now that you've mentioned it. So Hammer did three, four prehistoric women movies? Yeah, one million years BC prehistoric women, and then there's something like slave women or something like that. Right, yeah, yeah. So it may have been that they thought, oh, well, you know, Teenage Caveman might have been good in the 1950s, another Roger Corman film. But yeah, maybe we can cash in if we put some prehistoric women in this. And, you know, it's we're kind of in the middle of the sexual revolution, and you know, having women run around in, in seashell bras, can definitely probably get uh, more people back into the drive-in and ancillary into the TV because there is there's a widescreen version of this is on the the new DVD set. I don't really? know if you watched. Yeah, I don't know if you watched it. And in- no, I didn't. I, I streamed it off Amazon Prime, and the transfer was terrible. Yeah, like I said, I don't have that box set yet. I really want it. Yeah, the uh, the transfer is very very good on this film, though the Russian parts are darker and kind of browner, uh, showing the sides of, um, both age and, and, uh, duplication, uh, you know, reduction as okay. well. But the, the, uh, on the box set, it is a, a, a 16 by nine widescreen transfer, which would indicate that at least at some point, it probably was shown in the theater. Right. Yeah. It was intended for television, but, like I said, there are some places that say this one did have a, a limited theatrical release, so I'm not surprised to hear that. And that's awesome uh, that this got some screen time on the silver screen. I actually prefer this one to the three 
this is my favorite of the batch, and I think it's because it feels the most fun. Right. It's the most wacky out there sci-fi of the three. Uh, not just get it out of the way. It's not my favorite just because of the women. Right. I mean, I mean, it's great, and it's, it's awesome to have some estrogen in this film for once, uh, right. you know, instead of just having you know one token female character, we actually have a handful of prehistoric women in the film who don't speak using their mouths. Right. Because yeah. they didn't have the, the budget to shoot sound, but yeah. they did have the budget to dub them. So the they become the, the prehistoric psychic women, which is cool. The very, the cage or the menagerie from uh, Star Trek. Where right. You just say, look <laughs> at each other meaningfully, and then you hear their words. <laughs> right. And props to Bogdanovich for directing them well enough that that, you know, even if he didn't know that they were going to dub them later, he managed to get good silent performances out of these these actresses that then could be dubbed and, and enhanced with words later. So, you know, props to him for that. I can see why you would prefer this one. This is, I think, the first one I saw, but it's hard for me to tell because the titles are so similar. Yeah, I remember watching these in black and white on a UHF channel. might have been the one out of Worcester, and I lived in Boston, so the Worcester one was mostly snow oh. <laughs> and crackly sound. I remember watching this film in early 1970s, late 1960s circumstances on on TV, through the snow, through the sound problems and stuff, turning that loop antenna <laughs> until you can get just enough to follow the story. And I'm pretty sure I saw this one before The Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. But having said that, I'm pretty sure I saw the other one too, and as a kid, was totally confused by it. Wait, where are the women? <laughs> Were, okay. weren't there, wasn't there a sequence with the women? Isn't there a sequence with the pterodactyl with the women? Isn't there a sequence with the robot with the women? Where did that all go? Like I said, I think I saw this one first. It's got a 2.8 rating on IMDb, and I love this film. This is easily not a 2.8 film. It's a three-star film out of five. Solid, you know, middle-of-the-road production. Good exploitation value. Knowing that they were probably intending it for TV, looking at it now, I'm like going, I'm surprised these women are wearing as much as they are. I think I mentioned earlier, they're wearing basically white hip hugger bell bottoms Mm -hmm. on the bottom and then seashell bikinis on top, which in the case of Mimi Van Doren, (laughs) seashells the size of hubcaps, right? Oh, wow. There, there is one shot where I felt like, okay, they're lingering quite a bit to make sure that we catch the woman whose seashells do not completely cover the uh, the breasts. So there's, yeah, they're intentionally oh, yeah? I'm doing. I'm gonna that. have to go back and watch it it's, again. I, I mean, <laughs> it, it doesn't expose anything, but it's right. clearly the bra size is too small here. Well, I, you know, <laughs> as a kid, the fact that there were hot chicks in it definitely was an attraction for this film for me, you know, I mean, it's the 1960s, hot chicks and films. Awesome. So, you know, from the exploitation standpoint, clearly they knew what they were doing. And I'm sure that that got them more eyes on TV and more eyes in whatever limited theatrical release they might've had. And it'd be interesting to compare the, the full screen versus the, the widescreen version and see if there's clipping at the top and bottom, or if they actually 
pan and scan the one you watched because I didn't have time to do that. And I may, maybe I do have time later, but it's hard to watch bad prints after you've watched a really good print. And the print of this on the, on the DVD set is really good, really good. Right on. So it has some judder. It has some, some issues. It's not like it's a fully restored edition by any means, but it looks probably as good as it ever did in terms of uh, seeing it on drive-in or TV when originally shown. This one does take a complete turn. <laughs> it's not just a remake with, a, a, or not even a remake, but a revisiting with the new, uh, the dubbing. It's a completely different story. It is and it isn't. I mean, there's still some elements. The Russian, the space explorer story is still the same story. It's just been cut down so much to make room for this other stuff going on. Right. There's the whole other story, including these women. And because they're shot in different countries, in different blocks, political blocks at the time, the two sides, the women and the, the astronauts, can never actually be in frame at the same time. Right. But through really clever cutting and filmmaking, they almost seem like they are a number of times during the film. And props to Bogdanovich and company for managing to pull that off. You know, there's a point where the we talked about where the, the characters are underwater in the original Russian film, and the, the prehistoric women are underwater watching the Russians and kind of keeping tabs on them as they explore, but they remain unseen. So they're kind of near misses, which make it really interesting. Yeah. But then there's, they've also, you know, in addition to having the kind of the women's, the storyline of the prehistoric women, they've also amped up things that, as we noted, were maybe kind of little elements that were maybe implied in the first one, like the psychic element of the siren call and of the, maybe the control of the robot or the awakening of the robot psychic elements are really played up in this. And I noticed this, especially when I, the last thing I watched before we, we started recording was the commentary version of this film. Mm -hmm. And as I was watching that, even though they weren't always talking about what was going on screen, it was suddenly like, Oh, look what they did there. That's kind of really clever. That's like the, they're kind of implying that the women are connected to the planet of storms and that they have control over kind of a lot of the weather and the elements and that kind of stuff. That's really kind of an interesting, interesting set of choices right. for this Bogdanovich and company. Maybe they'd say they phoned this in, but it doesn't feel like they phoned this in. It feels like, no, I don't think so at all. There was some real pride of creation here. They could have done a lot less and still gotten away with it, but they didn't. I agree. I agree. They didn't. They, you know, they did recreations of the prop of the giant pterodactyl. Yeah, and I like the element that they brought into play regarding the pterodactyl and how the women refer to the pterodactyl as uh, their god. Yeah. Really cool. that They call him Terra. Now, okay, this was the last one that I watched, and I finished watching it this morning. Might not have had enough coffee in me at the time. But they kept saying Terra, and I kept thinking, Terra? That's Earth. Why are they using an Earth? <laughs> no, it's Terra from Pterodactyl, right. you idiot. <laughs> the, P is, the P is silent. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But they recreated that prop, you know, which is mm -hmm. an actual puppet in the, in the original film, and they recreated it. I think the credit for that probably goes to Wa Chang, who is uh, sp listed as special props 
which I'm thinking is the the robot recreation and the pterodactyl recreation. And he's more than likely. Yeah, he's a, a fairly well known special effects guy. He worked on uh, just checking your the time machine, Land of the Lost, a voyage to the planet of prehistoric women. <laughs> Star Trek, the, <laughs> the TV series Star Trek is one of the other things that he worked on. Um, oh, well, there you so go. So that impressed me too. And when I was a kid, I didn't even notice that the they don't match up perfectly. The pterodactyl you see fighting the flying, floating air car doesn't quite match the ones that the women are dealing with. And the, the idol of the pterodactyl doesn't quite match the one that's underwater. But it's close enough. Yeah, it's close enough. And especially with the transfer that I watched, it's kind of hard to tell that the details don't quite match up. But yeah, I think it was close enough for what it is. If I didn't know going into either one of the American versions that it was cut up from the Russian, I don't think I would be able to tell that or would think at least on first watch. Yeah, this is a bunch of Russian footage with Americans thrown in. I I would just think it's something they went out and shot if I didn't know. Right. No, and I agree. And certainly when I was a kid and first saw these films, I had no idea at all. No idea at all. And probably didn't know until relatively recently when this kind of stuff started showing up on DVD and you could, you know, suddenly the internet was really working well. <laughs> and you could yeah. look look back at the history and see that these were actually taken from another set of films from an entirely different part of the, the globe. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know that there's a Godzilla that doesn't have Raymond Burr in it, right? Right. To compare films cut in with new sequences, I think the original Godzilla with Raymond Burr, Godzilla King of the Monsters, is the apex of that. I don't think there's a film, another film that does what that film did. As successfully. As successfully. And they tried. I mean, there's Gamera, Varan the Unbelievable. They tried. Right. And, and I'm fascinated with those efforts. I mean, I, I think yeah, the Varan thing is just, I'd love to talk about Varan at some point on the show. I'm fascinated by that. But, yeah, I think you're right. With King of the Monsters, they really nailed it. So the idea was, let's try to recreate that and do it on the cheap. And it just didn't hold up as well. Right. And they tried to do it a number of other times. Here, it's pretty successful. Yep. It's pretty successful. Certainly, watching it on an old, over-the-air UHF channel, I never could have told you that that, that, uh, that they cut apart another couple of films. Which is, again... One of the reasons that having two films with very similar names completely confused me <laughs> as a kid yeah. growing up. It's like, you know, I'd see Voyage of the Prehistoric Planet, and it's like, it's very clearly the same film, but where are the women with the seashells? <laughs> and then you'd see the women with the seashells, and you'd go, I-, I thought I saw another version of this that didn't have women with the seashells. What's going on here? I don't know that in the history of film, anyone's ever done this before or since, where they made two completely different versions of a third film <laughs> with very, very similar titles within a very short span of time. But so it's kind of fascinating for that. If you don't want to jump right into the Russian film, watch one or both of these two. And if you're going to watch one, I would definitely watch this one too, Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women, because it's not just a straight up version of the other. Right. It's got a lot of the same elements but then it takes them and uses them in different and interesting ways and in kind of unexpected ways. And like I said, I know Bogdanovich probably tell you he was slumming, but they put some effort into this. You know, they, they he thought about this clearly. He didn't just say, let's see what the least I can do 
to get away with the way, you know, certain older pictures where you suddenly see someone like um, Lon Chaney Jr. or John Carradine will pop up in the middle of an otherwise unremarkable film. And you could say, okay, the whoever did this film, they just wanted them in there for that star value. They didn't care what the rest of the film looked like. They just wanted to have the bankable star. And usually Chaney or Carradine would give you a good performance in the 20 seconds they were in the film or whatever it was. But here, no matter what he might say, and I don't know, maybe he, he likes it today, but clearly there was some thought and care put into this film. They spent some money, if not on the women's costumes, then on the, the Chang props, and it ties it all together. It goes above and beyond cashing a paycheck, in my opinion. I think all three of them are interesting movies, and I'm fascinated by the three of them together, you know, the, the triptych of whatever it is. <laughs> I'm fascinated by that, and I think it's something that, like I said, I've got that set on my wish list, man. I, That's why I'm really, I'm really glad that they, they put this out recently, that they brought it out and that they have the original uh, Soviet film on it as well. The uh, Print of Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women is really, really good, and when you combine that with a an excellent print of Planet of Burr. The set is worth it for those two alone. Plus you get two extra films, even if one of the extra films is just a remake of the other two. It's weird. It's like a, it's like a two film box set with four versions of, of the films. Right. <laughs> but again, I'm just, I'm fascinated by that. Watching them all in very compressed period of time. has really been kind of a fascinating thing to do. Highly recommended. I, I highly recommend these. Um, like I said, in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, there's a place for you to uh, order your own copy and like I said, less than 12 bucks. So check it out. And I'd love to hear what you guys and gals think of it. Drop me an email or, or call in a voicemail or put something together for me and let me know what you think. I think, I think you'll dig it. Yeah. Excuse me. If you aren't sick of what Stephen D. Sullivan has to say about things, uh, you can find him online at his website, which hopefully will be up and running here soon. But in the meantime, Cushing Horror. <laughs> you can see part of yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what are the URLs? One more time. The URLs are stephendsullivan.com or sdsullivan.com. And Stephen is spelled out with a PH, like Stephen Strange, not like Steve Rogers. <laughs> which one Though would I you love Steve Rogers. Yeah, which one do you prefer? Uh, Cap is one of my all-time favorite heroes, mm -hmm. period. Doctor Strange is right up there, too. But Cap, man. <laughs> okay. How can, it, how can a skinny, asthmatic kid not identify with a guy who's a skinny, asthmatic, who gets a super soldier serum and then goes on to fight Nazis and, and do right by his country, even in tough situations? I love Steve Rogers. He's one of my favorite superheroes. And here we go back to what we were talking about before I hit record. So before we go too far <laughs> off a topic, uh, I'll make sure there's links in the show notes to Steve's websites as well. And I'll probably drop in the promos for Dr. Cushing and uh, Daikaiju Attack into this episode. too. You might have already heard one, actually. So go check that out. Steve, thanks for doing this, man. It's been a while since we've had you on the show. Too long. Steve's website is, in fact, back up and running. So head over to sdsullivan.com to see what's up with Steve, to find out all about his books, to read some of his movie reviews, to get sneak peeks at some of his fiction, and just learn everything you need to know about Steve. And, of course, head over to cushinghorrors.com to learn how you can read Dr. Cushing's Chamber of horrors. Big thanks to Steve for being part of the show this week. You will hear him again on the show soon, probably in about a month-ish, because we have the Rally Awards to get to. Stay tuned for that. 
Thanks again, Steve. From the creators of One Million B.C., their most gigantic spectacle, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, rated G. Listen to the sounds of the jungle. Listen, but don't stop, for this is Kulnaka country, where legend says no man may pass this way and live, where the devils of darkness guard the ancient secrets of an unknown world of women. Prehistoric women entombed in a green paradise of evil and witchcraft. Why did you come? I can only believe the fates brought me here. And they brought you to me. Kari, the Amazon queen who rules her secret kingdom with primeval cruelty. Saria, the fair-haired one, the slave of Kari and all her wicked entourage. But your men, where are they? They are no longer men. <laughs> David Marchant, the white hunter who trespasses against the boundary of reality and reason to find another world, another time, another kind of woman. I am queen here. I will not be denied! Tomorrow you will learn what happens to those who try to master me. And see the men who are the prisoners of Kari, the evil one. Ah. You will witness the strange, compelling dance of the slaves. Ah. You will watch the ceremony of selection when a young maiden is chosen to be the bride of the devils of darkness. All this you will see, and more, as the legend of the white rhino unfolds before your eyes. And you share the frightening world of prehistoric women. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening and, well, being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience. Thanks for downloading the show. Thanks for retweeting tweets and sharing posts on Facebook and shouting about the show on random street corners or whatever. I just appreciate you spreading the word. If you haven't done so, please consider leaving us an honest review in the iTunes store. We really do appreciate that. It helps us out with whatever iTunes algorithms there happen to be. Is it even called the iTunes store anymore or is it just Apple podcast? I really don't know because I spend all my time working on the show and I don't really like it. Anyway, thank you for your support. That's what I'm getting at. 
You can head over to monsterkidradio.net to learn everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, all of the information that we've talked about here on the show, any links that we've talked about or websites or anything like that. You can find out where those links lead, where those websites are in the show notes of this episode. You can also find the previous 414 episodes, the archived episodes about the Monster Movie Madness Tournament. Everything's there, including our contact information. If you have any comments about this episode or anything else we've talked about here on the show, or you just want to talk about classic monster movies, you know I'm all ears. Give me a call. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can just shoot me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You're also going to find links to our YouTube page, which I promise is going to start getting some action here very, very soon. Links to Professor Frenzy and Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shop. Links to Amazon, where you can actually buy the movies that we talked about in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. And there's still time for you to vote in the Rondo Awards, so I'll make sure there's a link to that as well. RondoAward.com will take you to the homepage for the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. You have until April 21st to get your ballot in. I've talked about it a lot here on the show about how you can vote. I even have a How You Can Vote video up on the YouTube channel over at Monster Kid Radio's YouTube on YouTube channel. Check that out if you have any questions. Monster Kid Radio is up for best multimedia. And, of course, I... Thank everybody who's supporting me by helping me get onto the ballot and throwing a vote my way. We're also really pushing to get Kyle Yount in the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. He is the man behind the Kaiju cast. I've gushed about this show quite a bit recently as well. Bottom line, Kyle Yount, 10 years of the Kaiju cast, panelist at multiple conventions across the United States, filmmaker, documentarian, one heck of an interviewer, and even kind of sort of organizes trips to Japan for the listeners of the Kaiju cast. It's kind of informal, but... They do have listener trips. Kyle deserves to be in the Hall of Fame as far as I'm concerned. So please head over to RondoAward.com to learn how you can vote or just simply email Taraco at AOL.com. That's T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com and say Kyle Young for Monster Kid Hall of Fame and anything else you want to vote for from the ballot. I'm really excited to see who wins this year in the various categories. You know, this week we had a familiar voice on the show in the form of Stephen D. Sullivan. Next week, we're going to have a new voice on the show, somebody who's never been on the show before, but I wanted to have him on for quite some time. His name is Mike Bogue. He's a huge monster movie fan, and I mean literally, he loves movies with huge monsters in them. But he's also a writer, an author, you know, nonfiction and fiction, and just one heck of a nice guy. So he's going to be joining me next week. He and I are going to break down what our top three favorite big bug monster movies are, and those of you who know me probably know what my number one is going to be. But come back next week to find out what numbers two and three are going to be, and what mics are going to be. I had a great time chatting with Mike, and I think it's going to turn into a good conversation once I edit it and do everything I need to do to it to put it out to you next week in episode 416. Big thanks again to everybody who contributed to this week's show. Dr. Tongue, Mark Peterson is the man. Kenny, thank you for your Famous Monsters of Film Land segment. I know you were feeling a little under the weather earlier this week, so I'm amazed that you got it done. So thank you so much. And of course, Professor Frenzy's bedtime stories are a lot of fun. That segment, by the way, that's owned 
by Professor Frenzy. He owns the copyright to that bit. The Underwater Bosses, they own their music. The rest of the original content here on Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Like I said, that doesn't apply to the song KGB Tsunami. That belongs to the Underwater Bosses. It's from their album Aqua La Vista. You can find them at underwaterbosses.bandcamp.com. Check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek M. Cook, and I'll talk to everybody next week. Спасибо за внимание. Я поговорю со всеми на следующей неделе. Меня зовут Дерек М. Кох. До свидания.